The Reformation era that we've been studying is often characterized by uh, a series of phrases called the five solas. Sola is a Latin phrase or a Latin term that means only. And so the five solas were a, a list of short phrases that were meant to distill our understanding of what is really important for the church to be focused on down to what really matters. Sola Scriptura, the first of these Latin phrases, it refers to the fact that Scripture alone reveals the truth of salvation. You might recall that the Reformation happened during a time when the Roman Catholic Church had begun to drift away from the, the moorings of Scripture. There was great error spreading throughout the church, and the men of, of, of the Reformation and the women of the Reformation had a deep desire in their heart to see the church go back to what it was, to, to return to the foundation of Scripture. Instead of having the Scripture and church tradition on evil, equal footings, uh, the Reformers believed, rightfully so, that Scripture is the one true authority. It is the one Word of God. That man is fallible, the opinions of man can be flawed, but that the Scripture will never lie to us. So sola scriptura is the first of the solas. The second sola is sola fide. By faith alone, we receive God's great gift. By trusting in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and not in our own works or in anything else for that matter, we come to a place where we can see the work of Christ overcoming our sins. The Lord God saw us in our sinfulness, saw our brokenheartedness, saw that we rebel against Him again and again and again, and, and the seriousness of that sin was crucial. When we sin against God, we deserve to be separated from Him. We deserve to lose the life that He has given to us. And yet God, because of His great love for us, did not want to see us cast away. He did not want to see us suffer damnation. And so He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to come and to dwell among us, to live a perfect life that was completely without sin, that did not deserve wrath or punishment, and to give that life on the cross as a substitute for all who would have faith in Him. So it is by faith that we come to grace. And that is the third sola, sola gratia. Only by His grace and not by our own works are we pardoned before God. It is good to do good things, of course, but good things are not the reason why you will or will not be in heaven at the end of your life. If you are going to be in heaven with God for eternity, it will be because of one reason, because of His gracious, generous gift of salvation that He has given to you. Grace is something that we have not earned. It's something that we do not deserve and we have no right to. But by the, the generosity of Jesus Christ, we have grace and we can experience salvation and redemption from our sins and have a right relationship with our God. We, the fourth sola is sola Christus, which points to the fact that it is in Christ alone that we put our trust the object of our faith is the Son of God. He is the one who did the work that we could not do to make it so that we could stand before God without guilt upon our shoulders. And all of this is accomplished according to the fifth sola, sola Deo Gloria, which means the glory of our salvation all goes to God. And that's the song that we sang just a few minutes ago, the Reformation song, speaks to each of these five truths and how central they are to keeping our minds and uh, eyes fixed on what really matters in the church. Now today we're going to be examining one of the reformers. His name is John Calvin. John Calvin's impact on the Reformation was very widespread. But one of his greatest contributions would be in the sphere of sola scriptura, before we begin to examine John Calvin's life, the same disclaimer that Paul shared in regards to Martin Luther applies here. Calvin was a man, and as a man, he had his flaws. 
We do not draw your attention to John Calvin today because he was in some way a perfect example of holiness. There, there's only one perfect example of holiness, and that's Jesus. There are things that Calvin believed that we ought not to believe. There are things that Calvin did that we ought not to do. But in Calvin, we see a man whose passionate regard for God's word resulted in a life that's worth examining and worth praising God for. John Calvin was born in Noyon, France. I've never been to France myself, uh, but I hear it's beautiful. This is about 60 miles north of Paris. I did used to summer in Paris, Arkansas as a kid. My grandparents live in Paris, Arkansas. Not quite as fancy or European, but um, about 60 miles north of P Paris is where John Calvin's life began on September 10th of 1509. Ten years, or rather uh, eight years, before Martin Luther would nail the 95 Thesis to the wall of the cathedral. Uh, his father, Gerard, was an administrative aide to a high-ranking priest in the Roman Catholic Church. And so he handled the books and took care of the money there. His mother was named Jean, and she was uh, a, a wonderful, nurturing mother to John Calvin. John Calvin was an extremely intelligent young man. One of those guys that you know, if he grows up, it's, he's either going to be a, an, a real handful, or he's going to do something really good with his life. Um, we see Calvin... Uh, at the age of 14, entering into the University of Paris as a 14-year-old to pursue higher education. He intended to study for the priesthood. He wanted to use his great intellect to serve the God who made him. Now, John excelled in scholastic study. And at the age of 19, 19, he had earned his master's degree. Uh, for, for context here, when I was 19, I had completed Super Mario Brothers 2. That's what I had completed at age 19. But John Calvin already has his master's degree. Uh, John had originally planned to become a priest, but he switched his focus to studying the law, to become a lawyer, after his father had a run in a theological conflict with the bishop of their diocese. And they began to see some of the corruption and some of the bad doctrine that was polluting the Roman Catholic Church. So Calvin's study in law, take note of this, very likely influenced his ultimate contributions that he would make to the Reformation movement that was sweeping across Europe at the time he was getting educated. The words written in law have consequences and they affect rulings and outcomes of different cases. So good law must not be allowed to contain contradictions or vagaries. It must be specific. It must be direct. It must make sense. It must coincide with the rest of law. The way that we interpret the scripture and apply it to our lives also has consequences. It also needs to be direct. And so keep that in mind as we continue to examine Calvin's work. It was during his time at law school that Calvin was converted to true faith in Jesus Christ while he was studying none other than Martin Luther. Martin Luther had been on the scene for a while now. His writings were beginning to circulate in the different universities as people debated whether this man was just a rebel rouser or whether his points were valid and needed to be taken seriously by the church. And so as he was reading Martin Luther's writings, particularly his writings on justification by faith, John Calvin realized that he had not yet given his life to Christ and received salvation through faith. He recorded a testimony of his conversion in the preface to a commentary that he wrote on the book of Psalms many years later. In 1557, John Calvin wrote this about his own testimony. To this pursuit, meaning the pursuit or the study of law, I endeavored faithfully to apply myself in obedience to the will of my Father, 
But God, by the secret guidance of his providence, at length gave a different direction to my course. At first, since I was too obstinately devoted to the superstitions of popery, not popery, but popery, meaning the command of the Pope over the Roman Catholic Church, to be easily extricated from so profound an abyss of mire, God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame, which was more hardened in such matters than might have been expected from one at my early period of life. So he's discussing there how hardened his heart was and how set he was in his ways, but how God had to miraculously open his eyes and change his mind about some things that he had held so stubbornly to. Having thus received some taste and knowledge of true godliness, I was immediately inflamed with so intense a desire to make progress therein that although I did not altogether leave off of other studies, I yet pursued them with less ardor. Essentially what Calvin was saying is that once he had seen the light of Christ, everything else seemed dull to him. Nothing in life seemed to possess the power and the life that the gospel of Jesus Christ possessed. His passion for the word became unequaled. He still studied other things. He was a well-rounded learner, but his primary focus was going to be on Christ and redemption through him. I want us to take a second to stop and consider our own testimony. Think about your personal life in Christ. If you are here today and you do not trust in Jesus yet, then we welcome you. We're very grateful to have you. We hope that this is a place where people can come and examine God's word and hear from God himself who he says that he is so they might decide whether they believe in this Jesus, whether they were, are willing to follow after him or not. So if you're not a believer in Christ, thank you for being here. I pray that you will seriously consider the things we're talking about today. But if you are a believer, if you've given your life to Christ, if you know your sin and you have decided that your work is not enough to overcome your sin, you've realized that it is only by Jesus Christ that you can be redeemed then you have a testimony. You have a story of God's transformational power working in your life. Now, it's not going to be the same exactly as anybody else's testimony. But when you hear of this testimony of John Calvin and the light that it brought to him and the change that it brought into his life, have you experienced something similar to that? Don't be deceived into thinking that you can give your life to Christ and then continue walking the same exact way that you always walked before. God is here to redeem us from a life of sinfulness and to bring us into a new life. And that means that if you are saved, that God has begun and is continuing a process of transforming you into something new. And that should be a joy to you. It will not come easy, but it should be a joy to you to know that God is making you into something that you were not before he called you to himself. So as a 24-year-old who already knew a great deal about Scripture, because remember, he had, been, he had been training for the priesthood, so he had been in God's Word. He was a responsible learner, so he had studied things. Thanks to his preparations in the priesthood, John Calvin suddenly understood by conversion many things that to him before he misunderstood or that were a mystery to him. All that data that he had accumulated was suddenly useful to him. He saw it through a completely new lens that made it all make sense, the lens of the Holy Spirit. What before to him was a book that vaguely justified his traditions now became to him the eternal proclamation of God that determined Calvin's beliefs and understanding of all creation, even of his own life. He studied diligently to, to formulate order and to make sense of his new view of the world. He read voraciously. 
he spoke often with other like-minded believers, debating back and forth the finer points of theology. And he began to write out his thoughts as they took a more defined shape in his mind. In November of 1533, Calvin collaborated with a priest by the name of Nicholas Capps. They wrote out a sermon together that addressed carefully many of the transgressions of the Roman Catholic Church that they were still a part of. Now, Cop was the one who preached that sermon, but Calvin was instrumental in helping him prepare that sermon. And once that sermon was preached, it started an uproar in the university. It created many problems for Cop and for Calvin. Realizing that he was soon to be arrested if he did not leave Paris, he fled and he took refuge in the house of a wealthy Frenchman named Louis Dutelet, who was a sympathetic reformer. He believed in the Reformation, and because of his wealth, he had a great library of ancient texts. And so Calvin stayed with him for a time and dove into study of the ancient fathers. He read writers like Aquinas and Augustine. Uh, he, he took time to study the scripture and formulate better understandings of what he believed and how his new faith uh, changed what he used to believe. The ideas of the Reformation were making an ever-growing impact on the church and were impacting Calvin himself as well. And so at age 25, he left for Basel, Switzerland, where he began to write what would become his magnus opus, the Institutes of the Christian Religion. The Institutes of the Christian Religion was a systematic explanation of the Reformation doctrine as it flowed out of God's word. It was a systematic explanation of Reformation doctrine as it flowed from God's word. In this work, which Calvin would continue to refine and add to throughout his life, the French reformer did his very best to describe in a clear and an orderly way what he believed about God based on all that he read in God's word. A systematic theology is a useful tool, a tool that can help guide our discussions about and, and studies of God's word. Christian author Tim Challies writes about systematic theologies in general because, by the way, this is kind of a genre of writing now. There are many people, hundreds, even thousands, who have written systematic theologies from their personal perspectives. And Tim Challies writes about these kinds of books. He says, a systematic theology is the discipline of looking to the entire Bible to determine what God says about a given topic. It, is, it answers the question, what does the whole of God's Bible say about Blank, And then you can fill that blank in. What does it say about angels? What does it say about uh, uh, sovereignty? What does it say about salvation? What does it say about resurrection? What does it say about praise and worship? It is a logical, systematic way of organizing truth. To be skillful, accurate theologians, we need systematic theology. But we must also be aware that its strengths are closely related to its weaknesses. Fire is valuable for producing heat and energy. Yet fire's heat and energy is exactly what makes it dangerous. The problem is not fire, but allowing fire to get out of control. This is also the case with systematic theology." End quote. What Tim Challies is trying to help us to understand is that a systematic theology is a useful tool, but it is only as useful to us as it is accurate. As in as much as a systematic theology conforms to this book and comes from this book, it can be very helpful to us. But if you have a systematic theology that's teaching you bad doctrine, it could do just as much harm by entrenching you in ideas that are contrary to what God has revealed in His Scripture. 
Fortunately, John Calvin was able to see that the systems of belief that were employed in the Roman Catholic Church had strayed from the wisdom contained in God's Word. And by writing these institutes, he hoped to create a tool that would make it easier for others to see what the Bible really taught in nearly every area of doctrine and in faith. The first edition of the Institutes included a preface, and that preface was written to King Francis I of France, which was the native country of John Calvin. In this preface, Calvin makes it clear that he wants his work to impact the lives of many people, especially his fellow Frenchmen. Calvin writes in that preface, my purpose was solely to transmit certain rudiments by which those who are touched with any zeal for religion might be shaped to true godliness. And I undertook this labor especially for our French countrymen, very many of whom I knew to be hungering and thirsting for Christ, but I saw very few who had been duly imbued with even a slight knowledge of him. In other words, as John looked around his country, he saw so many people who said they followed after God, but they had only the vaguest concept of who God really was and how he intended to save his people. And so here John Calvin identifies a knowledge gap that exists in his countrymen that needed to be addressed. And he hopes that his writings will help bridge that gap. It turns out that that knowledge gap was an important hurdle to overcome, not only in France, but throughout the church. By bringing a clear structure and responsible approach to scripture interpretation and doctrinal formation, Calvin went beyond just pointing the finger at Rome and calling out their errors. That was not enough. He formulated answers and gave better interpretations that grew organically from the full canon of Scripture. And that is one of the great strengths of the Institute is that it said not only these people think what is wrong, but they said this is what the Scripture says is right. We might take note of two great steps that, that, that happened during the Reformation period that helped to dispel biblical illiteracy from the people. So many people had so little knowledge of God. And so the first step was on display in Luther's life. And, and, and it was on the sp and display in William Tyndale's life. And that was getting the Bible translated from the original Hebrew and Greek texts into the language of the common people so they could actually read it. Remember, most of the common people did not read Latin. And so to get the Bible to them in their own language opened up a whole new world of understanding for them. The second step was to help these people now see how the Word spoke to various aspects of their faith and practice. And that's why the Institutes was such a handy help to those who are reading the Bible for the first time for themselves. Friends, bad doctrine can have an incredible ripple effect. You can imagine a, a still lake. If you take a rock and throw that, that rock out into the middle of, of the lake, it doesn't just make a little drop and stay where it is. The, the waves, the, the ripple effect of that th thrown stone will cause an impact that, that spreads throughout the whole lake. And when we have bad doctrine, when we allow ourselves to believe things in one area that are false, we find that it might affect other areas of our understanding of God and have a multiplying effect in, in our misunderstandings. For instance, if we were to mistakenly interpret salvation as being what was being taught in the, in the Rome church at that time, a combination of Jesus' work on the cross and our own good deeds that qualified us to deserve that work, if that, if that is what we believe, then that mistake can then extend to other areas of what we believe. Suddenly, the idea of a purgatory makes some logical sense because purgatory was brought forth from the Catholic Church as a compartment, a spiritual compartment, when those who believed in Jesus and had been saved by Him but had not done enough good could go and pay the price for their sins that they had not confessed. 
for an undisclosed amount of time. So you can see how that doctrine, which doesn't exist in the Bible at all, purgatory is not in here anywhere. But because of a wrong sense of salvation, it led to that false doctrine. And that false doctrine then led to another false doctrine called indulgences, where the church began to say, well, if good deeds will help you to, to, to not have to suffer in purgatory, maybe my good deeds done on behalf of my, my brother who went to, went to purgatory can get him out earlier. And so one bad idea breeds another bad idea, and the whole ripple effect can make an incredible, incredible impact on those who are confused. Approaching theologic, uh, the, theolo theology systematically can be seen as controversial by some. It is not always, uh, not always embraced in every area of Christianity. For one reason, it forces you to answer questions that you would rather leave unasked. When you try to see your understanding of God from the lens of Scripture, it makes you think of things that you would otherwise like to overlook. For example... In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's a difficult saying, and it's a, it's a saying of exclusivity. We must ask ourselves then, what about the native who lives in the jungles of the Amazon in Brazil, who is born in the Amazon and dies in the Amazon and has never heard the name of Jesus uttered one time? Can that individual be saved? Now, these are questions that many people are afraid to address. They're afraid to ask these questions. They would rather just assume that the love of God's going to cover it some way, but they don't really think about how Scripture explains these things to them. And the problem is, if you just overlook that and don't ask that tough question, it's going to affect the way you look at missions. You know, if Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and no one can believe unless somebody preaches the truth to them, that's good theology. That means I need, I have a sense of urgency to either go or send someone to those areas so that everyone will have a chance to hear and receive the truth of Jesus Christ. You see how doctrine affects the way we act. But those, that's an example of one question that many people don't want to ask because they would rather just assume it's all going to work out. It's too hard to think about the fact that some might not have heard the, 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 the name of Jesus Christ. Systematic theologies are difficult for some and controversial for others because they point out differences in interpretation. They urge us to decide what to do with those differences. We don't all see the scripture the same way, do we? There's actually a, a good amount of diversity in the way that people in this room see the scripture. You know, I'm, I'm praying and trusting that, that those of us who come here have a, a, a common belief in what really, really matters in Scripture. The core tenets of the faith are, are on the same page uh, together. But there are things that are more open to debate that we don't necessarily all agree on. Some of the differences in our interpretations are of little consequence, but other differences are critical. And they dictate whether we can seriously move forward together in ministry, hand in hand. Now, many would rather skip those details and just focus on the very basics of the gospel so that we can all get along. But too often that results in a dumbed-down understanding of God that doesn't do justice to his dynamic wonder and complexity. God is, 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 is able to be understood by the simplest of children, but he is also beautiful and complex and is deserving of our thought and our attention and our meditation. We should be thinking about this God and the details of what make him who he is. Thirdly, systematic theology requires hard work. It's not the easy route. It requires diligent study to guard against contradiction and misinterpretation. 
Some have this idea in their head that because the gospel message is simple enough that a child can understand it, that knowing God should just come naturally to us, that it should require a little more than thinking about God occasionally from time to time. But the God we worship is a God who is very different than we are, isn't he? His thoughts, say the scripture, are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. So if we want to just understand God based on our own ideas of him, we will understand him wrongly. We must therefore go to his word and do the difficult work of letting him tell us what kind of a God he is and letting him tell us what kind of a people we should be after his own heart. Renowned theologian D.A. Carson wrote in his work, Scripture and Truth, he said the following, Systematic theology is not only biblical, it is inescapable. Everyone has a systematic theology. That is, a set of beliefs about who God is and how we are going to relate to Him. The only question is, is your systematic theology right or is it wrong? To what extent do your beliefs line up with what God has revealed about Himself in the Scripture, in His Word? End quote. So even the most dedicated atheist has a systematic theology. Theirs is just a lot simpler than ours. They say there is no God, so they don't have to believe anything about Him, right? But we all have a set of ideas that govern the way that we interact with the Lord God. It's time for us as God's people to ask ourselves, what do I believe about God that needs to be reformed? What ideas do I have in my head about this eternal, immortal creature that I need to change in order to match what he tells us about himself in the scripture? Works such as Calvin's Institutes can help us to refine our understanding of doctrine and theology and refine it so that it might better match the testimony of his word. Now I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you would. And uh, this month our sermon series is quite different than normal. Usually we just preach verse by verse through the scripture and let the word speak for itself. But we're doing a little historical emphasis for these few weeks. And so uh, we, we won't be doing it exactly the way we normally do it, but we still want to stay grounded in the word of God. Because if we're not teaching you the word, then we're not doing a whole lot of good for you. So we're in 2 Timothy and we're going to read today the words of Paul the Apostle, written to fellow pastor and elder Timothy, uh, we believe, at the church of Ephesus. In verse 16, it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the first thing that Paul reveals to us in this very important passage is that the scripture is breathed out by God. What does that mean? That means that when you pick up a Bible, you're not picking up the edited uh, collection of ideas that different people who were trying to figure out God on their own made throughout the years and wrote down and were put together in one book. These are not just the ideas of men. Scripture is special in that it is the very words of God delivered to us through people set aside for that special work. The scripture is therefore accurate, dependable, unchanging, and always profitable for us. It is not just the ideas of people. If it were just the ideas of people, then it would be no better than the church traditions that the Roman or the reformers like John Calvin sought to correct. The institution, uh, the institutes of the Christian religion is not the only systematic theology that has been written. 
nor is it the definitive and final word on, on doctrine. We must be careful not to exalt a book like the Institutes to the level of inspired scripture. And Calvin had no intentions of doing that when he wrote the Institutes. Rather, his goal was to write a companion work that helped a faithful studier of the Bible to connect the dots and to see the way that the passages contained in this book speak on a variety of important subjects that paint clear pictures of truth for us. So whenever you're looking at someone's systematic theology, if, you're, if you ever pick up, pick up a systematic theology by MacArthur, or by Gruden, or by Erickson, all excellent books, pay close attention to whether they are trying to draw their principles from the scripture, or if they're simply using the scripture to prop up their man-made ideas. There's a difference between the two. And not all systematic theologies are, are made the same. Some are not really worthy of your attention and your time because some are just the ideas of men that are trying to use the Bible to justify what they believe and preach. <clears throat> Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. This will be on the screen for you if you'd like to read along. The Apostle Peter writes, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This, friends, describes the way that the word was written. Men like Peter, in that very moment, were being carried along by the Holy Spirit and filled with the knowledge and wisdom of God so that he would direct their hand to write exactly what we as his church needed so that we could be healthy followers of this God. 2 Timothy, uh, again, chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, shows us why approaching theology, uh, theology systematically is valuable, even though it's difficult, even though it is controversial at times. It is worth doing because it acknowledges the unity and the consistency of Scripture. It causes us to address topics with the full counsel of God's Word. When we approach topics systematically, we don't just say, I wonder what the Word says about angels. And the next time we see one verse on angels, we say, oh, that's how I should believe about angels. But what if that's only part of the message that God has given to us about angels? What if we've got to look at different chapters in the Bible that also flesh out our understanding and, and give us a greater range of knowledge on this topic of these supernatural beings? We must look at the full counsel of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture. That means that you can't just say, well, you know what, my Bible's got this great little part here in the Gospels where it's red, Everything that Jesus said is in red ink. So that's my favorite scripture. That's what I'm going to live by. But the rest of that stuff, it's okay. I'm going to let somebody else study that. We can't take that mindset that only part of the scripture is for us. Other people think, well, the Old Testament scripture, and that's great for history, but it doesn't really apply to me today because it's all gone. You know, there, there isn't, we're not under the law anymore. So I'll let somebody else study the Old Testament. When in reality, when he's talking about the scriptures, he's talking about the old and the new. He says all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for us. That, um, that sola that I shared with you earlier, sola scriptura, it means, again, the scripture alone reveals the truth of salvation. But there's another Latin phrase that goes along with it, a companion phrase, and that phrase is tota scriptura. And that means that all of scripture enlightens our understanding of truth. Nothing you will read in this book 
whether it be the, the driest genealogies or lists of names, none of it is unprofitable for you. All of it works together to prove the goodness and the glory of God. You know, there is a great danger in only holding to part of Scripture. If we do not look at the full counsel of God's Word, it can seriously skew our understanding of truth. A great example of this is the Trinity. Now, I've debated with many friends and, and many, many other people in different faiths who say that the Trinity doesn't exist anywhere in the Scripture. And they say that you can look from front to back and you won't see the word Trinity. And the word Trinity isn't in the Bible. But the truth of the Trinity is everywhere in the Bible. They, they, those people that I've debated with before, they would come and they'd say, look, here's a passage of Scripture that shows Jesus doing something that is different than God the Father. So they cannot be the same. They would say, Jesus prays to God the Father, so they cannot be one being. Why would he pray to himself? But those conversations always come back to the same problem, is that when I bring up scriptures where God the Father and God the Son are seen as equivalents, they don't have an answer for that. Those scriptures, they put off to the side, and they simply show scriptures where it seems that the two are acting independently of another. But if you go to Roman, or Revelation chapter 1 and 2, God the Father is called the Alpha and the Omega. And then speaking of the Son, he calls Jesus the Alpha and the Omega. How can anyone be an Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, if they are not God themselves? If they are not a created being? See, the Holy Spirit works in concert with Jesus. They work together to do good things. But that doesn't mean that they are separate entities. And those who have a wrong view of the Trinity will often make an error of one of two ways. Either they cannot see Jesus and God, being, uh, God the Father being one, and so they make Jesus a lesser being. They say he is, he is a, an angel. He's greater than us, but he's less than God. They make him eternally subordinate to the Father, which is a serious mistake because God is, is Trinity. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all three of those parts deserve worship and honor and praise. If we downgrade Jesus, then he's not getting what he deserves from us. Speaking of worship, when you look through the testimony of Scripture, there is a resounding, resounding call to believe in one God. The Shema, the very basic of the Jewish faith is, O Lord, or hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord he is one. The first commandment of the ten is you shall worship no other God before him. And so God alone is worthy of worship. Any other time in scripture when somebody who follows God is mistakenly worshipped, they correct that individual. You might study the the mission adventures of Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey. They perform some miracles and the Gentile people that see that happen bow in worship and begin to declare that the gods have taken on human form and are with them. And you know what Paul and Barnabas do? They correct those Gentiles. They say, get up off the ground. Do not worship us. We are not worthy of worship. We are mere men. God alone is worthy of worship. The same thing happens in Revelation. When John is taken up into the throne room of heaven and an angel comes to him with a message and he sees this grand being, this supernatural creature, and he bows and gives honor and glory to it. And the, the angel says, do not do that. Get up off of the ground. I am not worthy of your worship. Only one is worthy of worship. And yet when you read about Jesus being worshiped, does he correct anyone? Does Jesus say, no, don't, don't exalt me, don't worship me? He doesn't because Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God in the flesh. The word Trinity might not be in the scripture, but the concept of the Trinity is everywhere in the scripture. And if you look at tota scriptura, you cannot deny it. The whole counsel of God's word must inform our understanding of God. 
Approaching theology systematically is valuable despite its difficulties because it helps us guard ourselves against our own personal biases. Now let's be honest, friends. There are areas of Christianity that really catch your attention, that really make you want to focus, and there are areas of Christianity that you likely neglect. There are aspects of your faith that you probably overlook when you should not. 2 Timothy verse six, uh, 17, uh, chapter 3 says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Lord God intends to make us complete, and that means that we need all aspects of our faith to come before our eyes and before our hearts. We need to contemplate all of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We cannot just linger on the things that appeal to us the most. If we're addressing the whole counsel of the word, then we won't just hang out on those passages that we want to hear all the time. Go into a Christian bookstore and find those mugs that have the wonderful little verses on the side, you know, the inspirational mugs. You probably will not find a single one of them that quotes Hebrews 12, verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Nobody wants to hear that when they're drinking their coffee in the morning. But it's true, isn't it? The Lord God is a good father. And because of that, he can't just say, oh, whatever you want to do, I'm just going to let you do it. It must be good if it makes you happy. He's not the mom who lets the kid run wild in the store and knock over the displays and just, you know, basically lets it happen. God loves his kids and he loves them too much to let them go down the path of error. So a father who loves his sons will chastise them. This is part of a scripture a lot of people don't want to memorize. They don't want to consider this and take it to heart. But it's exactly what we need in specific times of our lives to remember that God will allow us to experience the hardship of our sin if we refuse to repent and turn and go the way we ought to go. Yes, God is love. Yes, it is a blessing to know him. But we must also see the struggle of following Christ and taking up the same kinds of uh, persecutions that he was known for. We have the consequences of our actions, the consequences of our own sins to take into into account. So systematic theology, when done right, can prevent us from overlooking those hard truths that we'd rather not see. It's also the reason we like to preach expositionally here at this church. We like to just go straight through a passage, verse by verse, because that prevents you from hopping over the stuff that is hard to interpret. It prevents you from avoiding the topics that you'd rather not put your attention on. Now, there's one other reason that I think that a systematic approach is very beneficial, even though it's hard. And that's this. You are less apt to share a God who is a stranger to you. This is an evangelistic purpose, friends. When we approach our understanding of God systematically and, and try to be thorough in the way that we understand Him and the way that we apply His Word to our lives, then our ability to reach out to people improves. If God is largely a mystery to you, somebody that you don't really even know how to describe or understand or someone that you can't relate to, a God that you don't know what he expects of you, then it's going to be very hard for you to go to another person and say, come and experience this God that I have started to follow. Most of you know that before I was a pastor, I worked as a mechanic off and on. So I often get that phone call from somebody in the congregation, Pastor Nick, my transmission's acting funny. Tell me a good mechanic around here that I can go to. And my, my reply is almost always the same. I don't know any. Not because there aren't any, right? But because as a mechanic, who does the work on my cars? I do. I do all the, one, the work I, on my own cars. I fix it when they break. I maintain them. I do the preventative stuff. 
So I don't go taking my car to somebody else. So I really don't have any experience. If I sent you over to this place, he might be a shyster. He might do bad work. He might pretend to replace parts he's not replacing. I don't know because I don't have any real experience with him. I don't have the kind of knowledge to which I could give a good endorsement. And if you're not in the word of God, if you're not studying this God who is so powerful and who has such a plan for this creation that we live in, if you don't know his will, then how are you supposed to go up to somebody else and say, come and follow this God. I think he's good. Should be all right. That's not going to happen. If you want to be on mission for the Lord, if you want to be proclaiming his truth and sharing the gospel, you need to seek to understand your God according to the words that he has given to you. Scripture is how we become complete, isn't it? It's how we become properly equipped according to those verses we looked at just a minute ago. If you want to learn how to dance, go to a dance studio. If you would like to understand how to deal in real estate, then there are seminars you can take. There are some technical manuals you can read. But if you want to become equipped to serve God, the place you need to go is God's word. The extent that you will be able to serve and follow him is contingent on the extent to which you comprehend the full counsel of his scripture. Romans chapter 15 verses 4 through 6 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. You think he's just talking about the New Testament there? I don't think so. I think he's talking about all the scripture. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, by his word, we become personally complete. We become equipped and ready to do what God has called us to do. But together by his word, we become complete as a family. There is great unity to be had when we are all seeking the word together, when we are operating on the same premise and the same understanding of what truth really is. So when you seek the word, you're not only blessing you, you're blessing your brothers and sisters. We get stronger the more we all spend time in the word of Christ. To know God's will for us, to know God himself, we must respect the full counsel of Scripture, for all of Scripture is breathed out by God. Returning back to Calvin's timeline, in 1536, Calvin decided to move to Strasbourg, Germany, to continue his studies as a scholar. Now, he could not take a direct route there due to a war that was being waged between Francis I of France and Charles V. And so he diverted to Geneva. He only intended to spend one night there. But a man named William Farrell, a reformer who was trying his best to make Geneva a center of Reformation thought, recognized Calvin and said, you are the author of the Institutes, aren't you? A man who was instrumental in building up Geneva saw in Calvin the potential for a great pastor, a great instructor, and he implored him to stay on in Geneva as their preacher. Calvin uh, writes about this experience in his memoirs. He says, and I quote, Farrell, who burned with an extraordinary zeal to advance the gospel, immediately strained every nerve to detain me. And after having learned that my heart was set upon devoting myself to private studies, for which I wished to keep myself free from other pursuits, and finding that he gained nothing by his entreaties, he proceeded to utter an imprecation that God would curse my retirement and the tranquility of the studies which I sought if I should withdraw and refuse to give assistance when the necessity was so urgent. 
By this imprecation, I was so stricken with terror that I desisted from the journey which I had undertaken. Maybe I should try this a little bit more with you guys, right? We need some workers in Sunday school, and if you don't sign up, the <laughs> Lord will not bless your restfulness. It worked with Calvin. He saw the, the great need there in Geneva, and Pharaoh's passion for the gospel caused him to stay. I love how the, the Lord uses different types of people in different ways, right? I wonder what kind of impact Calvin makes if Pharaoh, the fiery guy, doesn't grab onto him and make him stay. God works in mysterious ways. Calvin's uh, pastorate in Geneva did not come easy to him at all. As I studied for this, um, this sermon, it really made me appreciate what happened last weekend. And you guys were so very kind to us. And from the pastoral staff, I just want to thank you all for being so, so receiving to us. It is a joy for us to be able to serve you all, to be able to preach the word without fear that we have to hold back. We can just tell you what the word says and you receive it. And that is a great blessing to a minister like, uh, like myself. It's a great blessing to Paul and to Chris. And especially in light of what Calvin went through in Geneva, I appreciate being here serving you all. Though Farrell and other leaders in Geneva believed Calvin was the right man to help them establish strong biblical doctrine, many of the citizens there in Geneva were more interested in pushing off the yoke of the Roman Catholic Church than they were in receiving the yoke of Jesus, the one that is easy and light and yet is still difficult to carry. They wanted freedom. They didn't necessarily want freedom to worship God the right way. And so his first setback had to do with defending the sanctity of communion. The Lord's Supper is a practice we do here every first Sunday at least. Sometimes we do it more often than that. And we don't just breeze through it really quickly. We don't just say, okay, bread and the juice is up front. Come down and get some if you want a little bit of a blessing today. But we talk about it. We urge you to pray about it because the Lord's table is a sacred thing. And Calvin saw it that way as well. He went to the extent that he realized the church in Geneva was, was becoming so enraptured with sin and error that he did not feel comfortable allowing some of the people of his congregation to come forward and taking those elements, knowing that they were not repentant of their sin, knowing that they were just happy to be doing what was against the Lord God and was disgraceful to him. And so he began to challenge his members, and he began to instill a desire in the leadership there in Geneva to go back to the biblical model of church discipline, which is outlined in Matthew chapter 18. On Easter Sunday in 1538, Calvin refused to administer communion to several prominent members who were living in sin. They weren't repentant. They weren't trying to get things right. They were defiant. And the citizens of Geneva supported those defiant citizens. And they kicked, they kicked Calvin out of town. They gave him his marching orders. They sent him on his way. And he left. Remembering that he did not originally intend to stay in Geneva anyway, he gladly went upon to Strasbourg where he hoped to continue his studies. Now, once he got to Strasbourg, he had another feral moment because there was a man by the name of Martin Bucer who was there. And though Calvin just wanted to study and write and do his own thing, Bucer said, listen, there are 500 French refugees here who are reformed in their thought, who want to see the church change, and they have no pastor. Would you please preach to them? Would you please be their shepherd? And of course, Calvin saw that as, as God's hand, and he succeeded to shepherd those people. And during that time that he spent in Strasbourg, uh, Calvin preached to them. He wrote commentaries on the epistle of Paul, uh, the, the many letters that Paul had written to the churches, and also to the apostle uh, and also, to the, especially to the Church of Rome, because he felt that the Roman letter was critical for understanding justification by faith. 
He penned a, a very important letter called a reply to Sadoleto, which was a defense of the Reformation to a high-ranking official in the Catholic Church. And then he also married uh, a woman by the name of Ildelet, um, who was a widow with two children of her own. And she became to him one of his greatest blessings. He wrote quite frequently of what a joy it was to serve God alongside her and how she had been such a support to him. Sadly, they tried to have children of their own, but they lost multiple children to miscarriage, uh, stillbirth, and then one child lived two weeks before he passed away. And these things were great challenges and trials to his life. And we need to take, take courage when we have to struggle through difficult loss like this, knowing that even some of the men and women throughout history who've done so much for the Lord still suffer according to this world because of the sin that is around us. He loved uh, Idolette, and they established a great life uh, there in Strasbourg. He also used that time to establish, or expand, rather, the institutes, along with translating that great work into French so that it could benefit his people. Expansion and refinement of that book would be a lifelong task for Calvin. He was kind of a one-hit wonder. Uh, many of the uh, church fathers, the reformers, did multiple works, which you would know the titles of. But when it comes to Calvin, he really sank most of his time and effort into putting together this one book and making it the most that it could be, the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Before long, the, the, the city of Geneva that he had left began to see the problems that come with trying to stand for truth while at the same time be unwilling to let the word of God govern them in truth. The people were unhappy. The town was in chaos. They missed the honest leadership of John Calvin. And they needed desperately someone who had the courage to confront their sins and hold them accountable to personal reform. Calvin's friend, William Farrell, sent word to John Calvin asking him to return and become their pastor once again. In a letter written from John Calvin back to Farrell on March 29, 1540, Calvin replied, Rather would I submit to death a hundred times than to that cross on which one had to perish daily a thousand times over. Do you see how much trouble it had been for him to try to bring the people of Geneva along with the, the instruction of Scripture? It had been a real grind for him. But nevertheless, the Holy Spirit began to work on his heart and began to prod him. And I have no doubt that Pharaoh's uh, real passionate zeal for the Lord enticed him back. And so on September 15, in September of 1541, against his own personal desires, he returned to Geneva and resumed his pastoring there. In a very powerful gesture, he began preaching that first Sunday back at the very verse that he had left off on three years earlier. You know what that says? That says, tota scriptura. He wasn't going to skip a beat. He was just continuing to let the word speak for itself and let that word be the guiding principle that made Geneva a great city. During the years of 1541 to 1555, many historians have called this time Calvin's years of opposition. It was very difficult once again for him. Patriots and libertines fought against him. Servetus, a man who had some deviant theologies, was a big opponent to him and caused him much grief. That is the, the period of time where his infant child passed away. And a little while after that, his wife, uh, Ildoleta, died as well. To, to his heart, that was an incredible blow. He felt that he might not recover from that because she had been such a joy to him. But eventually, after hard work and striving, a period of, of blessing came. From 1556 to 1564, these years are sometimes called the years of support for Calvin. 
He established a backing among the leaders that began to trust him. He started something called the Geneva Academy, which was originally a school for children to learn the principles of the word. He was tired of fighting against adults. He wanted to teach children the truth of scripture because they were more willing and apt to receive it. And so he started this, established this academy, and eventually that grew to be able to, uh, to teach the older children and then the adults. And people who graduated from this academy went on to be missionaries all over the world, and they began to contribute to great works, such as the Geneva Bible, which you may be familiar with. Many of the people who were involved with the Geneva Bible, which was a great accomplishment at the time, were pupils of John Calvin, and many of them attended the Geneva Academy. He sent out literally hundreds of missionaries to plant churches throughout the world, many of them back to his homeland of France. And he continually added to and revised the Institutes until it was a comprehensive four-volume work translated into several languages, including French, German, and English. After a long life of serving God through hardship and trial, on April 25th, 1564, in failing health and nearing the end of his pilgrimage here on earth, Calvin dictated the following words that someone else wrote down for him. He said, I render thanks to God, not only because he has had compassion on me, his poor creature, to draw me out of the abyss of idolatry in which I was plunged in order to bring me to the light of his gospel and make me a partaker of the doctrine of salvation of which I was altogether unworthy. In counting his mercy, he has supported me amid so many sins and shortcomings, which were such that I well deserved to be rejected by him a hundred thousand times. But what is more, he has so far extended his mercy toward me as to make use of me and of my labor to convey and announce the truth of his gospel. Three days later, on April 28, 1654, Calvin completed his journey and left behind a legacy of preaching and writing that would be a blessing to God's church for years to come. John Calvin's uh, will and testimony survives. He reflected in, in writing that will, he reflected back on the whole of his ministry, and he shared that his goal had been to teach his word in all purity, whether by sermons or in writing, and faithfully expound on God's holy scripture. That was his goal of his life. And he did that. He did it in preaching, he preached every day of the week in Geneva and several times on Sunday. He did that in the commentaries that he penned. He wrote commentaries for most of the books of the Bible, wonderful commentaries. And he did that through the Institutes of the Christian Religion, which thought, uh, sought to bring together those concepts in a form that people could understand. The Institutes of the Christian Religion were critical to the Reformation in three ways. First of all, they helped to define the Reformation. They helped to make sense of this struggle against bad doctrine. They gave direction to the reform. Secondly, they helped defend the Reformation from those who said it was a wrong movement. It explained their reasoning, their purpose, their goals, their intentions. And thirdly, the Institutes of Christian Religion helped to disciple those who desired personal reform. It helped them to become stronger in their personal faith to Jesus Christ. As you consider the life of this faithful man, I challenge you to follow his example, to do that by taking the big task of knowing the sum total of God's word to heart and desire that every day God would help you to understand more and more about who he is and what he wants for you. Roughly 12 or so years ago, a movement within the American church began uh, to take root. 
Many pastors are beginning to become disenfranchised with the church and with some of its traditions, which they argued did not match scripture. Many people felt marginalized and put to the side. So a group of pastors began to think outside of the box. They began to reimagine new ways of worshiping God and doing things according to a, a more modern mindset. And this group of pastors began to be known as the emergent church. In fairness, many of the questions they asked were questions that needed to be asked. But ultimately, that movement fizzled out. And you want to know why? They did not have the equivalent of the institutes. There was no one among them who could define what the emergent church was about or say, this is what needs to change and this is how it needs to change. It seemed that every pastor in the emergent church was going in a slightly different direction. There wasn't great unity to that cause. And when other people brought them to task and said, how do you justify what you're doing from Scripture? They had no real answer according to God's word. In fact, many of them eventually abandoned the word of God. I'm, I'm grateful that the Lord uh, did not allow that movement to make too great of an impact on our culture and our church in America. But I am actually grateful in some ways that that step away from the scripture, which needed to be corrected, actually inspired many people today to be more in tune with their word. There was a counter-reaction to that emergent movement where people said, I'm going to know what I believe. I'm going to go back and study these reformers. I'm going to understand what I believe about the, the Bible and about the God of the Bible because God wants me to know him. Not just my own concept of him, but the, the picture of him that he has revealed to me divinely through his scripture. May we, as his people, be committed to seeking him out not just in theory, but in practice by picking up his word regularly and seeking to understand it. Let us be humble enough that when we see something in our own belief that does not match the word of God, that we might be willing to consider perhaps we have been wrong, that we might be willing to refine what we believe so that we might conform ourselves to the image of Jesus Christ the Son. Would you please bow your heads with me as we close with a word of prayer?